that that to me is honestly that's the most useful or most interesting part of Harvey's writing about neoliberalism is the contention that the organization of production tends to create a mirror image in the organization in the in the resistance to uh, the organization of production. So like in the Fordist era, you see industrial unionism and big class parties and the real most profound effect of what we're calling neoliberalism, which is a term I think I will defend, the, the corresponding resistance tends to be autonomous, individuated, disaggregated, much more diffuse in terms of its conception. So instead of the proletariat or the working class, you know, you you get to an era where it's like the not even the masses in the classical way that Marxists have used it politically, but like uh, everyone in, in social movements as opposed to the class struggle, right? And so one of the big questions for like reorienting socialist strategy in an era where labor is so disaggregated is to like how to not just mirror the the disaggregation in our own resistance Uh, rather than following and always tailing behind the strategies for maximizing efficiency of extraction of value it seems to me we should be pursuing strategies that maximize our capacity as a class to stay uh, collectively concentrated and organized hello And welcome to The Regrettable Century. I'm Chris. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jason. And today we are talking about neoliberalism. I mean, we talk about neoliberalism just about every episode. (laughs) But people don't really know what neoliberalism is. And in fact, when pressed to give a definition of it, I had to think really hard. And I don't think I could give a very concise definition. So we decided to fine-tune what it is that we know about and think about neoliberalism. And we're going to do that today. We're solving neoliberalism (laughs) today, guys. Yeah, whenever we did our year two sort of uh, projections into what we wanted to do in year three, one of the things that we talked about was picking a couple of these like commonly used, maybe even you could call them key terms that exist on the left, you know, whether it's in sort of academic discourse or if, whether it even comes to what qualifies as political strategy, however little we have of that. We have these terms, these concepts that we all use. And we don't seem to necessarily all have the same thing in mind and sometimes wildly different things in mind, you know, like culture industry is one. That's a little bit less common. Neoliberalism, it just permeated all conversation in the world so much so yes. that we can't possibly all mean the same thing. So this has been high up on a, on a list of priorities, but it seems like a big task also. So I don't think we can take on the project of like, here's the history of neoliberalism. Here's what it means. Here's what it doesn't mean. But I do think we can get closer to what we mean by it. Yeah, right. I think in the past, whenever I used the term neoliberalism, I was sort of using it in the way that David Harvey means it. And that would be as like a project that has completely permeated every every aspect of our society from the top to the bottom and like has gone beyond its original founding and the Montpelerin Society or whatever and the the project that was consciously taken on by uh, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and people like that, and has now if affected even the social democratic parties, who are clearly not as... If, if, the, if neoliberalism was a scale, they're clearly not Hayek, but they are moving in a neoliberalizing direction, say like the third way... Uh, Labor Party and, you know, German Social Democratic Parties in the, you know, late 90s and 2000s. So, like, that's how I have always meant it. And um, I would say that I think that that's a, still a fair use. 
Um, especially if you use the term neoliberalizing as opposed to just like neoliberal and there's either you're in the neoliberal camp or you're not, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I think that it's unquestionably the case that it describes something Uh, like there is a natural kind uh, to use a philosophical term. There's a thing that exists in the world that this term is referring to uh that 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 exists whether you know neoliberal is the correct terminology or whether we're uh we want to quibble about uh definitions or or you know we want to define it one way or another or use a different word to uh, refer to this category it is referring to a clear category that actually exists in the world that is diffuse and pervasive yeah i think it's i think a lot of people have heard it more more than ever even in the in the last couple of years because of the way in which the term has come to be almost like reduced in a way to like the bad liberals so like yeah neolibs be like you know and then some dumb thing with like a hillary clinton meme right right and they're not wrong hillary clinton is the <laughs> is <laughs> is a absolutely a neoliberal absolutely right? yeah but it's not just it's not like that there's hillary clinton who's a neoliberal and they're just like Mitt Romney, who's a neoconservative, or George Bush, or whatever. That's right. not the distinction at all. Right. They're all neoliberals. Yeah. In, in fact, every single yeah. political figure in the United States is a neoliberal, or is a, is a, rather, rather than being is a neoliberal, has uh, accepted and is a proponent of the neoliberal uh, philosophy for the management of capital, with the exception of Sanders, who is a, what, is it, what do you call it, an ordo liberal? Whatever. Keynesian? No, no, ordo liberals are just were like a school that was attempting to implement neoliberal ideas in Germany in like the post-war period, the immediate post-war period. I mean, you could call ordo liberals neoliberals. Got it. Okay. If you were like like my professor, who I think is really into Hayek, one of my professors is really into Hayek, he would quibble about whether the difference between ordo liberals and neoliberals. But I think for our purposes, we'd be okay with just lumping them together. I I don't know if I I would. I what I think of as uh, before we define neoliberal, let me <laughs> venture a, a definition or a categorization of this uh, n- new term, uh, ordo-liberal. I think that ordo-liberals, when I think of that category, I think of uh, the Kennedy family, the liberal lions of, of the American political tradition. Uh, I think of people who would go on Bill Maher and – uh, rant indignantly about, um, crony capitalism and the need to break up the big banks and the, the, the problems with, um, concentration of, uh, economic power and the need for government invention, intervention to, to, uh, you know, uh, encourage competition. Yes. I, and I, and I know there's, this is, they're both forms of liberal. That's, and so of yeah. course there's uh, overlap with neoliberals, but. But or, ordo liberal is the name for the Freiburg school of German neoliberals. Mm-hmm. That might be what you think of, but there's already like an accepted terminology of ordo liberal being used for the Freiburg school of German liberalism in the post-war period. So it's like, they're, they're pretty like, they're, they're rises simultaneous with the, like the Austrian school. But and often the ordo liberals are referred to as German neoliberals as opposed to the Austrian school, which is the more famous branch, yeah. which is like the Friedrich Hayek branch, which goes on to be more influential. Yeah. But the ordo liberals are a thing that exists outside of what you're talking about, which is original old school liberalism, right? Which which is which ha- inv- heavily informed by New Deal liberalism, exactly. r- liberalism, Keynesianism, yeah. Uh, yeah, strong overlap with with uh, social democracy as the term has come. 
to be in use around the world where they they do believe to be misused tr- around the world yeah. <laughs> where where they, well i mean it's it's transformed from you know lenin's time right you know what i mean it's it doesn't mean the same thing but uh uh where they believe I, in a I strong welfare state with that too though what what with the transformation of so uh, the term social democracy Right. I think that when we talk about social democracy, we're talking about like the early shift from like Marxism into the uh, like the German Social Democratic Party in the post-war period. Uh, And even and what and what New Deal liberalism is, is even a step removed from that. Right. So it's like I still think that what people call social democracy now is not social democracy. Yeah. Like it's not even close because the eventual goal of social democracy is still social, you know, transitioning to socialism. Whereas what people call social democracy now is just nicer capitalism. Right. So, like, I'm also against that terminology shift. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, what, what? Bernstein called himself a Marxist. You can't, like, throw him out because uh, because you don't agree with his theory. You know what I mean? No, but there is something like, we can do, which is that like Bernstein – I think Bernstein honestly doesn't get enough credit and he's uh, – we should be really clear that like today's acolytes of this sort of the purpose of socialism is merely delivering the goods and bettering conditions for uh, the working class, which is a strand. It's like yeah. even a big strand of thought inside of today's democratic socialism in the United States. You know, this sort of the movement is everything. The end goal is nothing. Bernstein, unlike today's proponents of what we might call revisionism, knew Marx, knew Marxism. He was almost the person instead of Kautsky who compiled the later economic notebooks and he knew he was consciously revising key elements of Marx's thought. Yeah, that's where the term yeah. revisionist comes it's, from, right? It's, maybe Herr Marx was wrong, and here's why. And he knew it better than most of the people who call themselves Marxists today, no matter what they think. So I do think he does construct an but alternative he, vision for, for the socialist movement. But on the basis of his knowledge of and appreciation for the economic, or whatever, economic doctrine of Karl Marx. There are shades of social democracy that still remain in the Marxist framework that like there's a shift from Babel to Kautsky to Bernstein, like three three distinct shifts in like the dominant, you know, ideology of the German Social Democratic Party. Um, but what people today think of is devoid of that utopian vision. It's like tactics without strategy, you know, it's like you, you win battles here, like you keep moving forward here and and they're winning this battle, winning that battle. And hopefully those will all accumulate to something that we don't know what the fuck it is. But we're going to hope that it's to good. A... And it's a good way to lose a war. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> you know, that's one of the, the big reasons that the Germans have always fought so brilliantly and never been able to win any wars. <laughs> they always lack a grand strategy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, in, in the modern world, right? I was going to say that is how we have lost. That's one of the ways we yeah. have lost lately. Um, but that actually does kind of lead us, I think, to uh, one of the important parts of the discussion, which is like using terms in ways that keep up with the way that they shift, right? So like we don't call ourselves social democrats, even though uh, Engels, by the end of his life, called himself a social democrat. Yeah. And Lenin in his early life called himself a social right. democrat. Similarly, proponents of neoliberal philosophy today uh, don't call themselves neoliberal, right? They call themselves classical liberals, and that raises this big important question: like, are they actually classical liberals? And uh, <laughs> no, clearly. Not. I mean, right? I think no, right? And I think we'll, at some point we got to yeah. get into like whatever the general contours and features of what constitute the neoliberal. Uh, what I what I guess I think is probably best just philosophy, management strategy, school of thought, right? But they do call themselves classical liberals, and I think there's a reason for that, which is like it's it sounds better, right? It sounds like you're 
reviving the glory days of capitalism when it was dynamic and it was progressive and it was like, you know, every year was like a massive leap forward technologically. It was a thing that gave a sense of the future. They're, they're, well, they're wrong, but, but I think that they are, they consciously utilize that, the, that terminology for a reason. Jason, I think you might be conflating people that refer to themselves as libertarians with. Oh, I think you're right. No, you're, you're right because new, because libertarians look at the entire arrangement of society around the world in every single country and they think it's socialism. Like von Mises would, I think, be a libertarian, and then Hayek, who split from von Mises, would be. The yeah, you're right. No, that's an important distinction. Um, I was, I was, I was making an error there. <laughs> right. So, Chris, you that's an that's an important correction because I, I was conflating libertarians and and proponents of the ne- neoliberalism, but this because, like David Harvey does. Right. Exactly. I, I inherited that problem from reading uh, one of the preeminent figures on the question. And and right and a part of the reason why he does that, I think, is to, to some of his credit. I mean, first of all, it's a it's a slop it's a sloppiness, right? But part of the reason he does that is because both libertarians and lots of other people who would not be libertarians but would be more accurately called neoliberal call themselves classical liberals. Well, I mean, I think functionally it's the same thing anyway because libertarians end up advocating for neoliberal policies all the time because it's the best that they can get. You know, it's right. like wait. So, is it functionally the same as classical liberalism? Is that neoliberalism? No, I'm saying I'm saying libertarians are functionally the same thing as neoliberals because see, they yeah. end up advocating for the same policies. It's right. like I told my friend one time who said he was a libertarian. I was like, "So you're just a fucking Republican?" Then he's like, "No." I was like, "Well, <laughs> who do you, like who do you vote for?" He's like, "Well, Republicans." And I was like, "Yeah, so you're just a Republican. That means you're a neocon." He's like, "No, I'm a I'm you know old school conservative." I'm like, "No, you're not, because you vote for Republicans all the <laughs> right. time." And he's like, "Well, who the fuck do you vote for?" I was like, "I generally don't." <laughs> Why? For socialists, which means I have an opportunity like uh, once ever. Yeah. <laughs> well, right, and so that's it's the same way in which like um, the the pragmatism of existing, uh, of trying to find a way to be impactful in a society like ours, which is, has hemmed in your options so much, is that practically speaking, the overwhelming majority of people who are like left-leaning socialists, whatever, are functionally just progressive neoliberals, right? Or Keynesians at right. best. At best. Right. And the, I think the probably the median, like the, the, the average number of people who consider themselves to be on the left – are just progressive neoliberals. I'd say the most pe- most of them are progressive neoliberals and who advocate for this very sort of individualized personal re- relationship to the world, their class and and to politics and that is precisely what neoliberalism would want you to do. For for simplicity's sake, I guess what we could say is that like in an era where the neoliberal philosophy is so hegemonic in the management of the affairs of capital that like every strategy and every sort of philosophical response to it, it, you know, however critical and nominally oppositional, it still happens entirely within the framework of a neoliberal discourse. So that right. so somebody like uh, an Elizabeth Warren is seen as like close yeah. to us to some to some people. It seems closer to us than uh, a Hillary Clinton figure. When in fact Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren are on the I, exact same side as whoever's running against them in the opposite party, that there is no space for us in those parameters. I was talking about this on the discord, I think earlier today where we were talking about standpoint epistemology and like initially standpoint epistemology was like a a Marxist concept. It was invented by a a Marxist. 
And then it gets filtered down into, through the neoliberal lens, into being uh, something entirely different. And it's the same thing with privilege theory, which was, I think, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois, who was a communist, right? And that gets filtered down in through the neoliberal lens to now be a mechanism of discipline and control for like the Democratic Party. I feel like right? I feel like he, he insists, insists that his yeah. name be pronounced as Du Bois. I think he did. Du Bois. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I grew up with a guy whose last name was Du Bois, who always got on my case about saying Du Bois. Yeah. <laughs> so, sorry, I didn't mean to 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 Frenchify uh, an American name. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I just remember a uh, professor one time saying that like. I, uh, that he that he he personally insisted his name be, for for whatever re- I forget the reasons, but he's he had reasons for insisting that his name be pronounced Du Bois. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think his right. Yeah, exactly. He it's a conscious decision anyway, on his, so, point, or his part. But yeah, my point being is that like these uh, <laughs> concepts, <laughs> these concepts that occur like in a from like revolutionary thought that are that are are meant to challenge the order are absorbed into neoliberalism. And I think that's one way that we can look at concepts like recuperation and how those like work so well with analyzing and talking about neoliberalism. Yeah. Because it's like, it's neoliberalism is perfectly set up to recuperate dissent and create new markets from it. Yeah. And I think that's something we can get into a little bit more later. In fact, I think it's on the list or I put it on the list. Anyway. I think, yeah, I think it is. I think, um, the, that also does lead to an, another way in which neoliberalism is commonly used and I think misused, which is as a, like a stage or a phase or like a type of capitalism, right? Which would imply that it has its own laws of motion, somewhat distinct from, you know, you have this era of capitalism and then this is a, and then the next one is followed by the next, whatever, monopoly capitalism is a distinct kind of capitalism rather than uh, a period in history where capital's tendency toward monopoly is uh, more accentuated, right? But with no different loss of motion. That would be my uh, my contention. That there's an mm-hmm. there's an over. Uh, we get too hung up on the idea that like we're in a stage of capitalism. Um, I think instead what we find is that capital has general tendencies, and that there are different schools of thought for the management of the affairs of capital based on where the bottlenecks are and where the problems are, right? So like similarly to that. The neoliberal era isn't like a, a new kind of, of economy. It's the same mode of production. It has the same laws of motion and has all the same general tendencies. It's merely uh, an attempt to try to – it's a strategy, right? Well, like, that's the way that I would put it. I would say that neoliberalism is not a type of capitalism. It is a, it is a management philosophy for the affairs of capitalism. The way that like the executive committee for the management of the affairs of the bourgeoisie, there are degrees to which they apply a given strategy – for trying to maintain or recapture profitability. So it, it uh, makes sense in my mind to describe it this way. And it sounds like uh, what that gestures at is that neoliberalism is a, uh, a particular political project rather than uh, being a new economic form. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. And I would say that that's um, – it's funny because there are, there are plenty of places where I think like someone like Paul Maddock Jr., and David Harvey would disagree, like in in pretty fierce ways about how to uh, make sense of how capital functions, whatever. But that's something that they both agree on. That like you can define neoliberalism, you can you can quantify it, and you can periodize it. And it's the emergence of a relatively coherent body of thought inside of and it, and its dominance inside of the the various institutions which manage capitalism. 
like Harvey, I think, does a good job of pointing out just how systematic it is with the like purge of the IMF and World Bank of all the Keynesian proponents, right? And the replacement with people who are like consciously neoliberal in their in their strategy. Mirovsky refers to it as the neoliberal thought collective. Yeah, I think that's like pretty it, good. And it, it might not be like a uh, a conscious organization, where and it might not be like a cabal, like uh, like the New World Order or something like that. But it's a people that collectively hold the same types of ideas. Yeah, and I think that that's. I mean, honestly, like it's simple. It's easy enough to understand why people, um, some people on the left, are uh, allergic to the term neoliberalism because it's a. Uh, often used as like a sub in for capitalism itself. And I think that's like the right. that's right. like the main thing that I want to make sure we we feel like we really dig deeply into. Or I, I or mean, it's or it can function a lot of times as the in the same way that people who talk about crony capitalism yeah. or whatever. They're, they're like the problem's not capitalism. The problem is this specific form of capitalism. Which, yeah, as opposed to like good capitalism, right. which if you like put the right kinds of constraints on it is mm-hmm. yeah exactly. Or like uh, I mean the 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 progressive wing of of British politics, right? Like the majority of the Labour Party. I actually right. read yeah. an article. Uh, it's an older one, but it's been the Guardian called neoliberalism the ideology at the root of all our problems and it's like you know when you read it it talks about inequality and and isolation and loneliness and all sorts of social ills and xenophobia and the rise of like far-right nationalism all of these things come from the sort of panic inducing world we live in that comes from there being no safety net and no regulations and so on and that's the guardian this is the same paper that defends Starmer versus Corbin and so on, right? These are the people who are like perfectly yeah. comfortable with saying, well, you know, you don't have enough state in your capitalism. And uh, yeah. to the, I think, to the extent that we just tail that, because we, we often do it unconsciously, we, we, we tend to uh, array ourselves against the effects of neoliberalism, which I think is the function of putting us on the same side as all sorts of objective class enemies in a, in a, well, you know, in a bad popular front that I think we have to figure out how to get out of. So I think that I, I don't remember where I heard this, but someone referred to as neoliberalism as capitalism without a human face. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah. And yeah. And I think that's that's apt. And it's yeah. not that neoliberalism is just like worse, a worse kind of capitalism. It's capitalism without the threat of the Soviet Union, without the threat mm-hmm. of strong unions, without the threat of strong labor parties that are looking out for workers. Um, it's the right. uh, the capitalism of the end of history, right? Tina, After the end of history. No alternative, yeah. Right, yeah, and, right. And that's, in fact, I one of the key things that s- strikes me in trying to like define the term for myself that this is this is sort of a, a key defining feature is that 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 distinguishes neoliberalism from classical liberalism was that the classical liberals were engaging in a project of constructing an economic system that was for the betterment of all right there's a utopian the neo- vision exactly whereas the neoliberals are consciously and intentionally anti-egalitarian and anti-democracy they see equality as a moral evil as an ill that must be extinguished from the world and they they see inequality as a moral virtue as a good that must be achieved well yeah like uh, by whatever means what did hayek say about about pinochet's chile he said i would rather see a liberal dictatorship than an illiberal democracy well well, he didn't say that about pinochet's chile in fact chile i don't know (laughs) pinochet made some pretty good chile though i gotta say yeah, <laughs> no, but um, 
he, I, I believe he distanced himself from Chile. There's saying, a taken no, no, out that's... of context, context quote. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a regrettable I, quote if ever I had one. I believe that he tried to distance himself from Pinochet. Oh, good. Good for him. But then... And, but then said that then said that thing that you said. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. it's bad PR, right? They they understand public relations. They understand propaganda. They understand these things and they enact them better than the left does. Seems like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean the the original neoliberals wanted a uh, very limited democracy with elections like only twelve years, and you had to be forty five years old and be a substantial property holder and able to vote to to be able to vote. So, like, if they believed in democracy at all, it was a very, very limited form of democracy. Well, so, and I, they, like, the United States is still a really good case study in the the effects of the neoliberal management style. You know, with, like, <laughs> decreasing access to to uh, voting places, whatever, the, the like, systematic uh, unveiling of the undemocratic nature of the American Republic. <laughs> I think that, like, just to, to talk about, like, some of uh, a few of the key points of what defines neoliberalism in it from the beginning. Yeah, we probably got to do that, neo- yeah. What the neoliberals saw themselves as being were uh, people that were attempting to use the state to ensure the smooth lubrication and functioning of markets. They, it, unlike the classical liberals or the, the libertarians, um, they didn't think that markets were naturally occurring. Uh, it's more like they thought of markets as being like like an information processing system that it's better than anything that human beings can come up with. So basically, you just sort of set it on its way and use the state to make sure that it doesn't then make sure that it's operating smoothly. Like they still believe that the state should have a monopoly on violence, and they thought that impartial elites should be appointed to govern. The, the the whole idea of of neo the neoliberal political idea is that there should be no such thing as um, special interest groups groups that represent a class a race a gender anything like that it should all be impartial observer uh, impartial like adjudicators which is fucking ridiculous the the idea that an impartial adjudicator could could exist and then there are people like uh, like what I mentioned earlier Hayek advocated for forty five year old men. Only I didn't say that before. It's forty-five-year-old property-holding men were the only one that should be allowed to vote or hold office, and they should only elect representatives every fifteen years. And um, to the neoliberals, to the original neoliberals who all fell in line behind Hayek and only deviated from what he said uh, on minor points, uh, freedom was the freedom to compete in the competitive market fairly. And to them, fairly is what the the state is there to. To assure fairness. The state assures fairness. Right. That sounds like it could be taken directly out of a speech by Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Or, you know, the Labor Party. Or or <laughs> right. Donald Trump. Right. So the the state also can intervene to create new markets. That's another thing that separates it from like a libertarian who would think that markets just exist naturally. <laughs> and then if you just take the state if you just take the state out of this the the fucking equation, the markets are going to do their thing and it's all going to be good. I mean, the, honestly, libertarianism is the most laughable pseudo-philosophy that there is. It really is. So, like, um, you know, the state will intervene to create new markets, like, say, blowing the shit out of Iraq and <laughs> yeah. creating a market right. to rebuild Iraq. 
<laughs> yeah, or, or any number of other things, right? Or like, yeah, like um, uh, what's it called? Um, cap and trade as a a way to deal with climate change. It's just it's creating a whole new market. A market for the right to pollute is is what you know the, the concept behind it. Which, despite being uh, enacted in various places uh, around the world, including California and uh, and foreign uh, markets in um, in different parts of Europe. Uh, there is no example, not a single one, of it ever actually reducing carbon emissions in anywhere that it's been implemented. Right. Or if you look at the management of the Russian economy in the post-Soviet era and the like wholesale privatization and deregulation of entire, I mean, you know, the parts of the society that had been created as state institutions, like they, they have their origins in the late 1920s that didn't exist prior so that they are have always only been state institutions. Whatever they, what we call it now, the shock doctrine in the post-Soviet world is the creation of a whole huge number of new markets that then get integrated into the world market. Or like, you know, what's been done to any number of public institutions in this country uh, and in every country. Um, and, and, in, and, in, and in many countries at the point of a gun, right? Like the, the whole history of Haiti is tragic enough, but the way that like the Clinton era administration like the methods employed to make sure that Haiti didn't institute like a minimum wage, for example, in the early 2000s. Uh, yeah. Uh, sorry, late 90s, early 2000s. I guess it was Clinton Bush. doesn't matter. It's hard to – I can't keep them straight because they all do the same things. So one of the ordo-liberals, uh, Wilhelm Ripke, he said that liberal market intervention had the task of guaranteeing the individual a stable, secure framework of existence – Right. And basically their their guiding principle is to help people help themselves. That is now the guiding principle of liberalism in general. Right. And that, like you mentioned, you said that that could be something that Barack Obama says or Donald Trump or, you know, right. Tony Blair. I mean, what is what is the Affordable Care Act? You well, know? the Affordable <laughs> Care Act is is pr- pretty much what what happened in Chile under Pinochet. Yeah. Um, they had Damn. mandated private health insurance. Yeah. It was a, uh, a scheme concocted by the Heritage Foundation, which is a right. Hayekian neoliberal institution, uh, think tank. Is it correct? Am I, am I right? In- no, you're, no, you're exactly you're right, right about that. Yeah. Those thoughts, yeah. It, it's part of that, you know, neoliberal uh, thought collective mm-hmm. that uh, Mirovsky talks about. Yeah, which, the which, Heritage so, Foundation again, is, is like the... The Leninist vanguard of neoliberalism is the Heritage Foundation. Yeah. In the United yeah, States, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah uh, if only if the please could. Please, when you hear that, put Leninist in many quotes. I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't mean it the way that, not literally. Len- Leninist the way that fucking, um, what's his name? Donald Trump's advisor. Uh, Steve, oh, Bannon. Steve Bannon. When he referred, yeah. Steve Bannon, he referred to himself as a yeah. Leninist. It's just about that Leninist. Yeah, just because right? words don't Which, mean anything. Well, I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, what pe- I think what that usage means is more like Machiavellian. It's just like, yeah, being serious exactly. about sh- strategy, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to having, your political having argument. actual political strategy. That's yeah. all it means. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, again, I mean, so all, all of these examples sort of iterate the point that the distinction between classical liberalism, which would be more like an actual libertarian, which is, just detached from reality at this point in the world, at this level of experience that we've had uh, with the history of capitalism uh, versus neoliberalism is, you know, the classical liberal position was get the state out of the way so that markets can uh, operate in the world and and grow and expand and, and be more diffuse throughout the world versus the neoliberal position of state using the state uh, of, of, of enacting the state policy of 
implementing uh, markets and making the world look more like uh, like the market. Right, because like right. if you think about the collapse of a major institution, the too big to fail enterprise. Right, there are three three capitalist approaches to it. One is to let it fail because if you can't compete, then fuck you, right? And that would be the libertarian ethic, right? Or there's right nationalize it, take it under public management for the because it serves some critical function in the maintenance of the society as a whole, and that's you know would I don't know with various terms for like state strategies for maintaining right uh, Keynesian right, sure just call, call it Keynesian that works um, and then I think yeah. what is often called Keynesian today because of how far into utter dominance under neoliberalism we are where you just bail them out right and that's considered oh look at this state management strategy and some people. Some people literally call it socialist when the Obama administration bailed out all of these failing enterprises, right? It's like, no, that's neoliberalism. That's utilizing the capacity of the state to determine phenomena, right? Which is what power is. It's when you get to define what is and what it did with its power, what it could have done anything in the world, is it's to say, here, have some more money. Stay afloat because you're too big to fail. So Hayek said that, you know, markets aren't natural, but that society subconsciously creates the best rules of the game. Right. So society should, that's what the state should be used for is to enforce those subconsciously created rules. Uh, so basically rule by legal precedent. Of course, legal precedent has interpretations that change, right? But that new legislation is just bad. You should not have new legislation. You should just have alterations of legal precedent. You're supposed to avoid legislation if at all possible. So like you try to be a sort of a constitutional originalist. The political environment we live in in this moment is, seems to me, one in which, like we've we've already sort of alluded, I guess we all agree to this, that like the neoliberal uh, framework has basically completely excluded like real politics. So like whether you're liberal or conservative or you're a communist or you're a fascist is like really comes down to like aesthetic questions, right? Like a matter of attitude. Posting style. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in this extremely degenerate age we live in, it is posting style. But even... um. Even 20 years ago, 40 years ago, but certainly now, right? Certainly now. Right. Even pre-internet, yeah. it was, yeah, you could yeah. you could see it or call it a, an aesthetic, a personal Right, so that we, aesthetic. I was just trying to be as dismissive as possible. <laughs> well, you should be. But like, you know, we have this notion that like, oh, you know, there's progressives as like a, some sort of a, lo- a broad sort of coalition of progressives and that we're in it as socialists. We're a part of that. And we are a part of that, but we're a part of that in the way that like, uh, conscripts are in an imperial army we're not we are definitely sent on the battlefield to die for it but we're not in charge of it and it's not for our purposes um but i don't think we i mostly i don't think that uh i don't think we really get it i don't like really what what we talk about in this podcast every every time we get together to discuss anything is ultimately it's fundamentally about that series of 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 problems right whether it's you know the the way in which identity is weaponized to uh obliterate the possibility for solidarity among workers the way that like reforms are so narrowly understood as to being like reinstitute glass-steagall what whatever there's a whole there's a whole series of things but ultimately what we're talking about is you know this whole absence of the horizon the cancellation of the future it's this. It's the it's yeah. the the cultural condition created by the neoliberal period. Yeah, that has the the left engaged in a a series of victories that are ultimately futile because it's all part. It's all operating within a neoliberal framework. I was gonna say we win all the culture war victories we want, 
But if we don't do anything to change the way that we relate to capital, you know, the relationship of between capital and labor, then we ultimately just lose in the long run. It's basically like, you know, the, the left is Hannibal and we're going around winning victories against the legions of Rome. But like, eventually we're going to run out of steam and we're all going to be massacred and uh, the, the empire will assert its dominance. Right. I mean, every victory ultimately becomes a Pyrrhic one. And that's how you, it, that's what happens when you fight a war with that strategy. Right. This is like, you know, when the Grand Armée gets all the way to Moscow and they're like, obviously we beat the the Russians. And then the Russians are like, no, you got to, we're just over there now. You just got to keep coming. And now, and now we have to retreat all the way back and half of our, what is it? It's like two thirds of the fucking Grand Armée doesn't return. Or maybe it's more than that. Yeah. I forget. I should know this. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's the, the same exact thing happens when... Hitler invades the Soviet Union, like enormous defeats where they just kill and capture hundreds of thousands. They, they literally destroyed 113% of the Red Army between in, in 1941. But guess what? <laughs> By 1942, it was bigger. Right. So basically, Sorry, I basically just, I've been reading a lot about this lately. Basically, what we're saying is um, without a clear conception of what it is we're up against, and what we even mean when we say these things, we're basically like Hitler. <laughs> a lot of regrettable <laughs> quotes from Jason on that today. <laughs> I do think it's probably important that we're, we're really clear that, like, the reason why we constantly refer, return to this theme of, like, the limits of the cultural victories is not because we think people are stupid and not because we think that that's all worthless, right? No, it's definitely worth something. It's definitely unifying the class, breaking down cult, breaking down barriers between oppressed peoples uh, is definitely a project of unifying the class. Right. It's just that we, we, we just, I'm going to go out on a limb and say all three of us think this, <laughs> that uh, fighting neoliberalism as a substitute for fighting capitalism and adopting all of the logic of the, the neoliberal sort of individuated subject and incorporating that into our praxis as we try to develop a new socialist movement is it's, it's a matter of like preparing for tragic catastrophic losses and like setting ourselves up to lose as much as possible. This isn't like I disagree with, or I'm annoyed with your, you know, culture war affectations. It's that like, this is a, this is a tragic course that we will, it can't possibly do us any good if we don't, recognize that like when we talk about opposing systemic racism uh that we actually mean something about the way that the society is organized and not the individual thoughts in a person's head that have to be like beaten out of them right right exactly. we do not oppose <laughs> the racism medical right <laughs> you know because like uh I well i mean we oppose those yeah, we do we obviously do we roll our eyes when we hear somebody talk about like oh we have a radical self-care collective you know um, and it's not because I don't think that you know, yoga, meditation, all those things are like useful for the individual, but because those yeah, aren't a sub are. in. You should yeah. do that. It's probably probably a good idea. Yeah, I'm fully on board with those things. In fact, I am a practitioner of some degree of those things, right? But it's just like it's not a sub in for the the reassertion of this collective subject through institutional strength, like trade unions and parties and in cooperative societies and. You know, whatever. We used to have the foreign language federations and cycling clubs and rifle clubs and youth camps and those things which gave you some sense that, that not only is there such a thing as society, but that there's a, there is an emergent new society waiting to be born. And that is the midwives of history. Like that's what you, 
That's what you. That's the role you adopt when you become a socialist. It's to become the one of the midwives of history to help usher in the birth of that new order. Not to fucking assuage your guilt about you know your privilege by living in a society where you can order shit on Amazon. Not to like make it easier to sleep at night. Obviously, you do want to not feel guilty. You do want to make it make it easier to sleep at night. But that's not what we're here for. That's what's been given to us as a, a framework for how to view the world by the complete domination of neoliberal ethics in the society we live in. That's why it's so frustrating right. when we talk about the culture stuff. If you really look at the culture, the left culture that was bequeathed to us by the 90s, what we get as our methods of organizing are all small ways that an individual can contribute to what hopefully aggregates to a movement, right? It's all like lifestyle-based politics and um, and identity-based politics. I'm not saying that identity is not important or anything like that. I'm just saying that like substituting identity and substituting lifestyle for the working class as the collective subject, trying to individuate the subject is is uh, is what we get from the thorough neoliberalization of the left that happened in the 90s. And we are now trying to deal with that. Yeah. Just going off of off of that, is this what it it seems easy to me to to make the connection to capitalist realism in my mind that this is what absolutely. we mean when we're talking about capitalist realism as the this yeah, inescapable absolutely. reality that we are locked into that we are all of us, including self-identified leftists, neoliberal subjects. Absolutely. I mean – Honestly, like that's, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was a point I was like, how do we get to that? Cause I want to make sure to say that <laughs> because, uh, you know, when we, when we look at the what's on hand for a, you know, ready made sort of at least introductory politics for the young radical who's feeling visceral righteous anger and frustration at their condition. In addition to what we've already covered in terms of like the, the get out, get out a chart and figure out where you are on the identity scales and how they aggregate to oppression oppression versus oppressor points and i know that that's glib and it's meant to be but not just that but it's also that like what's what's on offer as an alternative even to that is still fully wholly acceptable within the bounds of even mainstream dis discourse about how to manage the affairs of capital right like when i wrote down the question are today's socialists mostly progressive keynesians obviously that's a leading question i think the answer is yes um <laughs> but it's so much so that like uh, in this essay, uh, in, in Jacobin, uh, what is it? It's neoliberalism, never heard of it. Uh, it, it concludes with the whole, the whole essay is just about the conditions of neoliberalism and what it is, why it's verifiable, and like how to define it easily, you know, with all the things which we know, the state apparatus, you, you get leverage to guarantee and create markets, you know, privatization, marketization, blah, 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 blah. And at the end, it ends with a Mark Fisher quote about escaping capitalist realism, but nowhere in the essays does it actually talk about capitalism and imagining a world beyond any of it, right? It talks about the resisting the effects of neoliberalism, because that's how effective, that's how thorough, uh, capitalist realism is, is that our, our conceptions of resistance and our conception of the great enemy is so obscured from the real, the capital labor relation that needs that contradiction that has to be overcome. Like on its own, fighting neoliberalism is the best we can imagine is what honestly a lot of people in the, at, the, at the sort of the general staff of the movement are, you know, talking about all the time, which is like returning to the best aspects of the New Deal. Plus, it's always like the old the old state liberalism plus more is the is our primary conception of socialism. 
right? This, what we call social democracy is even less than what social democracy was in its golden age. Basically, combating neoliberalism is when you post that you don't give a fuck about Mr. Potato Head or J.K. Rowling. And then giving a fuck about Mr. Potatoism, Mr. Potatoism, <laughs> giving a fuck about Mr. Potato Head is neoliberalism. Yeah. I will 100% I tell you that. something. I do not give a fuck about Mr. Potato Head. And you shouldn't. One way or the other. If you care about it. You are in thrall. Right. So if our parameters, maybe to put it slightly differently so that I'm not just rambling forever. If our parameters are defined for us by capital as either a state capitalist sort of corporatist vision for uh, managing the society in, in a way which is utilizing the productive apparatus for the betterment of all without abolishing the commodity form, without abolishing the domination of capital over labor, without getting rid of, uh, without moving away from a, a regime of, of this of value, right? Of the law of value. Um, and our other opportunity uh, option being there's no society. Everybody is a, uh, a fucking commodity unto themselves everyone is an entrepreneur entrepreneur of their of their self um then we can't win right like those can't be the only two ways that we think about the world because otherwise we cannot build a better world the best we can do is make weirder lamer echoes of what we already have until again like fucking drown in a nuclear sea yeah so i want to raise a um a complication or maybe a counterpoint i'm not sure exactly uh where this will fall at this point before i throw it up in the air um so I don't I, I don't disagree with what you're saying about, uh, you know, even the best of the left is just referring back to the New Deal Plus. Um, but what I think about, uh, what that immediately makes me think about is, well, how else do you communicate to people? Yeah. Uh, other than with a shared experience. And and so what I'm I'm thinking of is. Uh, the nature of, well, I, I guess I'm going, uh, going all the way down to the nature of language itself. But, uh, you know, if if even without going down to that level of um granularity here, we can just say like, how do you engage in a political project of any sort, uh, without calling upon uh tonalities of resonance? that other people already share. I mean, maybe this is a, this is the, this is the hell of a capitalist realism that we are trapped in, uh, is, uh, the hell of tonalities that resonate solely within the capitalist framework. Uh, and if, if you, if one is to imagine beyond that framework, one ceases to resonate with others. And that is the nature of the prison that we are locked in. Right. Um, but you know, just to decry that reality does not, you know, what else you got? <laughs> you know, no, that's a that's a fair question. It really I, is, and it's a vexing question. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think that. So I don't think that we should eschew all references to the things which are um, the closest, the best, the best versions of what we have already had. I don't think we should stop referring to them. But I think we should be very, very clear and we should at least try to figure out ways for that plus to be much more than a plus, right? So like, I think, I don't know, I think we have to figure out a way to communicate in a way that in in a language that people actually speak, that we do actually have a vision for the world that goes beyond uh, the welfare state. So that when we're fighting for the welfare state and we win it, that we, it's like a, a temporary cessation of hostilities while we gather our forces, like, the socialists don't exist to bring back the New Deal. 
we do want to bring back the New Deal, right? Or some version of it. We want that right now. But like, there has to be a way of communicating something more profound than that beyond without just saying like nationalize everything and elect all managers, right? Because like, I mean, that, that, that should be, that's what I want to do, right? <laughs> but it's, that's actually not literally what I do, what I want to do. <laughs> I actually, I actually want to do a whole conversation, uh, sometime soon about what, what we actually want to try to do and like what a real, uh, blueprint schema transitional program a transitional program yeah <laughs> i mean yeah i mean i was i was just going to say that we have to find a you know a way to communicate a utopian vision to people that doesn't sound ridiculous that doesn't sound like something that they can't con- they that they can't bo- begin to conceive of and you're not totally wrong that something that we've already experienced is a good way to relate back to people but at the same time like what was karl marx doing you know when he laid out his vision his utopian vision yeah you know what were the bolsheviks doing when they laid out their utopian vision i mean i think that like there's a certain amount of boldness that is appealing right i do think we have to have more faith in not just not just in other people but also in ourselves uh and it doesn't mean i like here's the formula but i do think we have to at least recognize the necessity of reaching for it because i do think that there is there is some way in which an attempt to make something as palatable as possible starts to define what the thing is so that like i, yeah. I if you know i i don't i'm part of the problem with the, the anti-woke left yes exactly it starts to internally you start to get defined by the 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 lowest common denominator version of what it is that you're actually projecting right we do have to we do have to be able to speak the language that people actually speak but i think that like connecting to existing sentiments and also trying to point to something beyond i think is it's the great task of the propagandist so like when i read a lot of like contemporary socialist literature i i, I don't even see attempts to re reassert the cooperative commonwealth as a future worth worth defining and then trying to in bits and pieces and never having it fully right but like you know what, what instead it's like Major socialist publications today have literally just defined socialism as, uh, as, as have defined the New Deal as a socialist project. And that's not true. That's different than saying some piece of the vision we have for the world ha- can be seen in embryonic form in certain programs from, from this period in history. That's different than, uh, the New Deal was a socialist project. It wasn't. Uh, it was consciously a project to ward off the threat of socialism. You know, okay, <laughs> and yeah. I don't want to spend too much time on the New Deal. I just mean like, well, yes, but I mean, I mean, you talk about socialist publications doing that. I mean, publications like Jacobin, uh, like the article that you were just referring to. But the thing is, I have in my wider social co- networks, my community, the people who I associate with, who I don't know through political activism, who I don't know at, through like uh, who, who who they themselves do not think of themselves first and foremost as socialists uh, and do not read theory and don't, uh, you know, even if they're into like nerdy shit, they're into other nerdy shit. They don't um, sit around and think about uh, uh, political ideologies and how to like, you know, uh, sift through things the way that you and I and 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 the listeners to this podcast are are intentionally doing. People who are just existing out in the world in whatever weird and unique ways that they are, they don't read publications that do what you're suggesting. They do read Jacobin. And they share those Jacobin articles on their social media accounts. And they 
think that Jacobin has good ideas, and they take uh, political interest and 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 um, direction from Jacobin magazine, and that is precisely because Jacobin magazine has struck this balance of hearkening back to Marxism, but embedding it in. Uh, the shared experience of the American political, uh, uh, you know, uh, history. I mean, sure. That's uh, all the more reason why it has to be done, because we have arrived at yeah. a point in which there is a broad popular audience for a vision of socialism. So, like, I think I've said, uh, I don't know if I've said this here before, but, well, whatever. I think we have said that we do need a broadly popular socialism within which to popularize Marxism. And we need a broadly popular Marxism, a vulgar Marxism, right? So that we can contend with it on the basis of a, of a more sophisticated politics. I get, I don't know where we are and what step of the process, right? I just think that like the, the vision that we advance cannot stop at what is currently palatable to people. We have to constantly trying to figure out how to, how to move the bar. And it's not a purely, it's not a question of ideas, right? These things, I think in some way we're stuck because we are not in an, we're, we are still not witnessing the power of the working class. Because in the, in the, in a hundred years ago, when you have a general strike committee managing the affairs of Minneapolis or Seattle or whatever, it becomes really easy to conceptualize the dictatorship of the proletariat. Not just as the person on the general strike committee, but the person who gets a special permit to bring their farm produce into the city despite the strike because the strike committee has authorized it, right? You start to get a sense of what the rule of the toilers actually looks like. Uh, and so then it's not a matter of trying to figure out the best way to describe something that people already know. The thing that people already know is what they're experiencing, right? That's what Soviet power was. The Bolsheviks didn't invent it. It was actual. They said, oh, yeah, that's what we mean. Or the Paris Commune, right? Karl Marx didn't invent the Paris Commune. The Paris Commune invented the dictatorship of the proletariat. Karl Marx defined it and not i don't even think he's not even the only one right so in some ways we we are somewhat yeah we're dramatically hemmed in by what's material and we should always strive to be as radical as reality itself so i think your point's a good one we should we can't just say that's all nonsense what we really need to do is what the ultra left publications did for the last 40 years and and end every article with (laughs) you know basically trying to encapsulate the whole of the class struggle Erfurt program vision for the world into like a soundbite. But I do think we have to try to find ways to step a little further. Every time we connect, that's the beginning of whatever the next step is. Wherever the next link in the chain, of course, you have to grab the chain first, but then you have to find the next link. And I think that's that's what I think we ought to try to be figuring out how to articulate. Remember the Sparts criticizing us saying like why aren't you calling for workers councils to be in, in all power to the soviets in iraq <laughs> well because like, i'm not in iraq <laughs> fucking what dude <laughs> right so i think <laughs> what soviets <laughs> so right a practical a practical all power to the fucking dragons <laughs> you know what I mean? unicorns the 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 practical approach to to this question as it relates to this to this discussion is by asserting that neoliberalism isn't the problem like I listened to a, a Vox right. podcast this morning, uh, which is yeah, well, but you know something you got to keep in touch. You got to know what the what other what, you know. You have to be a, a familiar with what the other side is talking about. And it's this roundtable where you have somebody who's the left wing person or the far left person who's critical of neoliberalism, and then you had like this the kind of more centrist person who was like, oh, you know, I, I sort of think that there's there's such a thing as a progressive neoliberalism. I would call myself a progressive neoliberal, right? 
those can no longer be the parameters in which we're discussing things. Maybe we can't fully define socialism as greater than the New Deal Plus, right? If we can actually get every working class person to say we want uh, a more pervasive, like, New Deal Plus Reconstruction Plus 1776, if that's the way you have to imagine it in order for it to speak to your own uh, sense of where you are in the world, that's great, right? For now, what if we can try to move beyond critical of neoliberalism versus there's such a thing as progressive neoliberalism and and move to try to advance to a new terrain where we say capitalism full stop that's the problem everybody over there reactionary progressive whatever neoliberalism or even keynesians they are all advocating something that is tantamount to maintaining the thing that you hate most in the world the reason why you hate mondays right they're trying to they're trying to maintain the regime of mondays that you hate all of them (laughs) Because then at least we can begin to start talking about Garfield what the hell. communism. <laughs> yeah. Well, then we can start to talk about what exists beyond capitalism. Because if we're, if we're stuck at neoliberalism, then we are necessarily stuck at Medicare for all and free college and the New Deal, which again, I, I do agree is like, that's a, it's not a bad place for people to be relative to where they were in the eighties, nineties and early aughts. But it's no free lasagna on demand. But it's no free lasagna on demand. <laughs> We should be perpetually discontent until we win, or until we're dead, which is honestly more likely. Far more likely. <laughs> <laughs>